am Erin Patton, metaphysical master in a millennial age, and it is my life's purpose to guide you and organizations along an enlightened path. So I invite you to sit comfortably and tune in as I welcome you to the Meta Business Millennial, where we get the real conversations you won't get in the boardroom so that we understand this is exactly the path we need to be on in order to grow, evolve, and thrive. Greetings, I am Erin Patton and welcome to the Meta Business Millennial Podcast. I am here today with none other than Miss Jennifer Henry, who considers herself to be a high-performance coach, y'all. She is a life recovery coach that does it at the highest level. And we actually had a chance to chat before. And so I'm really, really honored and humbled that she can come back and join me to really share more about who she is, her life path, why she's such a badass, and why she can help you really recover your life. And without further ado, Jennifer, I really would love for you to just do a little brief introduction of who you are before we kind of dig into the meat and nitty gritty stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. My name is Jennifer Henry. Everyone calls me Jen. I am a lifestyle recovery coach and also known as a high performance coach. And I help my clients connect to their authentic selves and to be able to show up fully and completely and create a sustainable life and career of serving others by making their own health, wellness, and happiness a priority in their lives. That's perfect. And, you know, when she was telling me about what a high performance coach is, it really resonated with me because, you know, I do a lot of work in the metaphysical spiritual space to help activate people's potential and what they do. And in many ways, Jen does the same thing. You know, we're really just trying to empower people to live their best lives. And um, before we kind of get into the work of what you do, I would really love to understand more about where you come from, because I know that you have a very, very intriguing, interesting, dramatic, like cinematic life. (laughs) (laughs) Like I can't wait to make a movie about you or see a movie about you. Um, But, you know, I would love to, you know, understand for our listeners, our watchers, our viewers to really hear from you, you know, where you came from and then kind of how you got to kind of where you are today. Absolutely. I always joke that I have a very colorful past. And if you haven't experienced it yet, that's okay, because I've experienced it for you. Yeah. And yeah, so I was an only child. I grew up as an only child with both of my parents. I was lucky enough to have both of my parents. Uh, And I had horses and I grew up on a dirt road and we had property. And while that sounds like the dream... It's very lonely when you don't know who you are Mm. and when you don't, when you're not connected to self, when you don't know what you like, when you don't know what you want, when you don't know how to really identify in the world around you, because there really isn't a world around you. And so as I stepped into, I went to private school for elementary school. I was super bright. I was top of my class. I did the John Hopkins university test and topped in the tested in the top 2% of the nation. I was testing in post high school work in fifth grade and at post high school levels and and so I don't know what they were thinking, I, but my parents decided to put me into public school. And I was so bored that I was pulling my hair out. I would literally know everything the teachers were teaching us. I could do homework in the beginning of class without thinking about it. I aced every test. And so I really didn't feel like I needed to be there. And mm. so I wasn't. And so that was my first real uh, memory of really disconnecting. I think I was always disconnected from self, but I think that disconnecting from my 
walk in life, disconnecting from my path, disconnecting, misaligning is really when it started was in seventh grade. And so I would go hang out in the bathroom and I would hang out with the other kids that were bored in class, but they were bored for a different reason. Yeah. And we started hanging out and they taught me how to disconnect for real, for real. Mm. And that's when I started smoking cigarettes. That's when I started smoking weed. Very shortly after that, I went into high school, still disconnected, still looking for that numbness, still looking for something to make me feel better. Because when I would get high or, you know, smoke weed, I would feel better. I would feel okay in my own skin. As a matter of fact, it was the first time I didn't have to feel anything. Yeah. And so I sought that numbness. I sought that disconnection. I went after it full force. And so by the time I was 16, I dropped out of high school. I was doing drugs. I went from doing, you know, smoking weed to, and they say it's the gateway drug. I don't know about that. I think disconnection is the gateway. And when I found cocaine, that was the next best thing. And then I found acid and that was the next best thing. And then I found ecstasy and that was the next best thing. And then I found methamphetamine and then uh, that was it. That was it for me. And it took over my entire world. And so I ended up homeless on the streets with an IV, with a needle in my arm, slamming meth from 16 to 18. Mm. From 18 to 22, I actually, I was arrested at 18 and it saved my life. I thank God for the laws that were in place at the time, because had they not been, had the laws that are in place in California been in place then that are now I'd be dead or still on the streets, but I'm pretty sure I'd be dead. Mm. And so getting arrested saved my life. It saved mm-hmm. me from myself because I wasn't in a place to make a decision to, to, to choose wellness. I wasn't going to be like, Oh, all of a sudden I just think it's, it's time for me to stop doing drugs now. And I'm going to go be a productive member of society because that's not how it works. I was still chronically disconnected, not just from myself, but from others. And, and I really, I needed, I needed to be saved for myself. And so I was, and so I went through a couple different treatment programs and I started doing the 12 steps programs. And, and I managed to stay sober by the skin of my teeth for four years. And and during that time, I got my cosmetology license and I started my own business. And so I've been an entrepreneur since I was 18 years old, really before that, but right. I've had my license as a, as a productive member of society since I I was 18 years old. (laughs) And I always been a hustler, but this time I was doing it legal and people were paying me up on the up and up. And so this, you know, really, I felt that this was it. This was me figuring it out. But the truth was, is I still didn't know who I was. I was still constantly doing everything everyone else told me to do. And they told me that if I didn't, I was going to die. If I wasn't of service, I was going to die. If I didn't do this, I was going to die. And so I was too scared to venture out of that to try anything different. Mm. And so what ended up happening was I was in a relationship. The guy got someone else pregnant and I relapsed. I didn't have a connection to God. I didn't have, and even Mm. if I did, I didn't know how to pray or how to connect or how to utilize that in a way that served me. It was more of a desperation. God, please help me. But I didn't know what to do after that. And I, and I ended up relapsing. And so I went back out on the streets. I ended up with a needle back in my arm. And this time I decided I wasn't going to be the victim. And so I was very aggressive. uh, I was living a very aggressive, very negative lifestyle. And I ended up going to prison as a result. And I ended up going to prison, getting out, getting released. And I was only out 67 days before I was rearrested on a parole violation and served another 17 and a half months in my second term in prison. Mm -hmm. And so when I was arrested this second time, there, I'll tell a story if I may. Yes. I had this bunk. I had this bunkie and so I get arrested, right? When I'm getting arrested, I know that I'm going away for a long time and and I had my drugs on me and I put them away in what we call our purse. And if I may 
if I need to describe that, it'd be like, think tampon, right? And so I put my drugs away. I hide them on my person, in my body, and I get arrested. I go, I get strip searched. At this point, I know all the cops. They're like, what's up, oh, Henry? I don't know why they always called me, oh, Henry. That's what everyone (laughs) called me. My name is, my last name is Henry, but they called me, oh, Henry, like the candy bar. And they're like, oh, what's up? You know, and they knew me when they were arresting me. They knew me when they were taking my fingerprints and booking me. And And that, I look back and I'm like, that is so sad. Yeah. That, right. But, but it's a part of my story. Yeah. And so I got through, I got through booking. I got to my cell and I meet my bunkie, my cellmate. And she's this, I'm six, two, six foot, two inch tall, 300 pound black woman with a shaved head. And she'd be known as a stud broad, right? Because there were these, there were stud broads and there were femmes and then there were the straight girls. And, and she, and I got along real well for the first week I was there because I came in with drugs because I came in packing. And so she was able to introduce me to everyone I needed to know and, uh, and get me what I needed. I filled my, can- my canteen. I filled up, with, you know, shampoo, conditioner, body soap, snacks, treats, all the toiletries and necessities I needed until I could get my, until I could go shopping. And so we were close. We got real close, real quick, you know, staying up all night at a time and, and then the drugs, and we got along real well until the drugs ran out. And I was not someone that uh, was very pleasant to be around when I was sober or not on drugs. And uh, I didn't even want to be around myself. I mean, I had single-handedly alienated every single person out of my life, from my friends to my family. Even the drug dealers on the streets didn't want anything to do with me. Mm. And I mean, honestly, neither did I. And and at this point now, in this time, neither did my bunkie. And we were both a little irritable. I was very irritable. And she said something and I started whoop whooping and I said something to her Mm -hmm. and she picked me up without even missing a beat, picked me up off my bunk, threw me in the corner of the cell and threw a Bible at me and said, you need God, bitch. And she crawled into her bunk. And she crawled, rolled over and threw her covers over herself. And I started MFing her and t- calling her out of her name. And I took the Bible and I threw it up in my cubby hole and I climbed up into my bunk and MFed her all the way to sleep. And I woke up and it was a couple days later and I woke up and she was at day room. And there is a, we have, it's called a wicket. It's a two man cell with a steel sliding door. And there's a little tiny clear window in the door and we call it the wicket. And so when the women are using the restroom and things, we're allowed to cover it for a few minutes. And so we, I put up the wicket cover and I got into my hiding place where I had my empty needle because there was no drugs left, but I still had my needle. And I climbed up into my bed and I threw the covers over me and I started injecting into my ankle. And all I was doing was pulling blood and pushing it back in and pulling blood and pushing back in. And just to see if there was anything left that I could possibly get from that syringe. And, mm. you know, we know this, this it's in those moments I look back and I realize I was not addicted to the drugs. I was addicted to the escape, the yeah, idea of the escape. It didn't yeah. matter what the drug was. It was, didn't matter if it was Netflix, didn't matter if it was sex, didn't matter if it was if shopping, it didn't matter if it was drugs, alcohol. It was my escape. It was my way to not feel. And all of a sudden I, you know, I'm sitting there and I can see the blood speckles on my ankle. And it was like, in that moment, I had this weird out of body experience where all of a sudden I'm looking down and I can see this girl sitting on the top of this bunk, just gaunt and sucked in and dead looking and sunken in eyes and just all bones. And I mean, a hundred pounds soaking wet and just on the verge of life, barely existing. And I just had this, my God, what have you done? Like what, what, it was the first time I'd ever really seen myself from 
an outside perspective from a whole perspective. And I just felt so sorry for the girl that I was staring at. And then, but at the same time, like I was removed from all the pain and all the discomfort. And I didn't realize it until the next second I was back in my body and I could feel all of it. Mm. And I realized in that minute that I hadn't for just a moment that I had been okay. And I realized in that moment that no matter what, I was not alone, Mm -hmm. that I was always going to be there. That highest version of me, call it God, call it the highest self, call it whatever you want to call it, call it enlightenment. I was never alone. Yes. And I was still here, Hmm. whether I liked it or not, I was still here. And there was a reason I didn't know what it was, but there was a reason. And I better figure it the fuck out, excuse my language, but I better figure it the heck out. And so, you know, it was in that moment that I realized that no matter what I had been through, that I did have purpose that there was a meaning that there, that I, that I had survived everything for some reason. And so from that point on, I made it to my mission to figure it out. I made it my mission to not have to feel that way anymore. And I realized that I didn't have to feel that way anymore, that I was the only one who could decide what my experiences were in this life. And if that, I didn't want it to be that, then I needed to figure out how to change it. And I didn't know how, but over the last 12 years, I've made it a mission. My, my movement, is lifestyle recovery. And that's why I started Lifestyle Recovery Solutions because it is not about the drugs. It is not about the alcohol. It is not about the sex or the gambling or the food. It is about the fact that we as a society are chronically disconnected from ourselves, which is in turn making us disconnected from other people. How are we supposed to connect with others? How are we supposed to have this community if we don't even know who we are or what we want or how to align with those like people because we don't know who we are. And so that is what lifestyle, I am lifestyle recovery. I am a different kind of strong and I am on a mission to create a movement around that. I have to just close my eyes and thank you so much for sharing that story because um, it really speaks to the depths of trauma that we as a collective face. Like you know, praise God for your journey and for you being able to go to the depths of the darkness. Like what you experience are the is the fucking depth, like the lowest of the low. And to be able to come out alive, not only alive, but thriving, beautiful and enlightened. And that's what a God does. That's what a goddess does. So you to me are a goddess embodied. And, and so, (laughs) yes, that's what it is. I received that. I received that. Yes. Because you have to go to hell to be able to emerge a God, you know what I'm saying? And so go through hell, however you want to describe it. And for me, I also have experienced my share of trauma, trauma. I know our listeners, our viewers have experienced their share of trauma. And can you walk us through, you know, when you came out of that, that, awakening, if you will, how did you come to start to see yourself as this, you know, being worthy of love? Because how you speak of yourself now, obviously you've, you've come to understanding that you had to love yourself, you know, no one else is going to show you that. But can you walk us through a little bit of, of the step by steps, things that you did to, to, to try to embody more of that love from a place where there was, you know, 100 pounds of no love? Absolutely. I love, it it really does come down to identifying what it looks like to, to be loved by you. Yeah. And I think that so, so often we, 
and myself, right? I was codependent, like nobody's business. I call, I consider myself a recovering codependent in my lifestyle recovery. Codependency is and codependency and perfectionism are my two people pleasing and perfectionism and procrastination are the three pillars that I work on the most in my own personal wellness, because I didn't know how to say no. I didn't even know what a boundary was. All right. So I get out of, so I end up uh, doing 17 and a half months. And while I was in County, uh, during that experience, right? I knew that I had to do something different. I knew that if I just went to prison, I'd already been to prison and I got out worse than I went in because I learned all the tricks of the trade. I learned all the mindset that I needed to be street and I didn't want to be street anymore. I wanted to be a productive member of society. I wanted to feel good about the life I was living. And so, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted. I didn't know how to go about that. Like you said, I, I didn't know what the first step really was. And all I knew was that I had to start trusting my gut and I had to start asking myself the right questions. And as I learned to ask myself the right questions and then honor the answer, regardless of how anybody felt about it. And so I, in the beginning of, uh, so I was in County and I actually had to fight for a rehab program Mm -hmm. because I don't offer that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I actually was, was granted a state funded rehabilitation center for six months followed post-release of my prison term. So when I was released, technically I wasn't released because I was still a ward of the state. And so they escorted me in a van from the prison directly to the rehab facility. And so I'm in this rehab facility. There's 60 women and multiple children. And I am not someone who's blessed to be able to have children. And yet here I was getting to live with all of these children that are being reunited with their mothers who are also straight out of prison. And So I'm living with 59 other women who are also trying to learn how to integrate back into society and figure out how to do life on life's terms. And we are all at different places in our program. And we would all start our day together and we'd all end our day together. But some of them had moved on to working or going to school. And for me, I was still programming nine to five every single day. That meant that I got up in the morning, I did my chores or whatever I needed to do, ate breakfast, and then went and sat in a group room from nine to five. And... I was, you know, they're, they're teaching us all this cognitive and behavioral therapy, dialectical, dialectical behavioral therapy, and they're known as DBT, CBT, different types of therapies to, to help us identify our feelings and to help us to learn how to have emotional regulation. Yeah. Well, as someone who's been medicated as a child, I was medicated because I was too much, right? I was considered too much. I had too much emotions. I was too loud, too crazy, too all over the place. And they didn't really have ADHD diagnosis 30, 40 years ago. They did, but it was not as common as it is today. Yeah. And And you just sucked it up. Well, they had started at around 12 to medicate me because they decided that I was too much. So they decided to medicate me, said that I was bipolar. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't like their medication. And so I started using my own medication and I started self-medicating. Yeah. And that looked like drugs. Right. Because I could control those. I couldn't control their meds. And I didn't like the lithium. I didn't like the Prozac. I didn't like the, you know, all the different ones, Depakote, the different things they had me on. And so... When I got out of prison, though, I was on seven different psych meds and they were trying to teach me all this, how to deal with these feelings. But I didn't have any. I didn't. They had successfully numbed me to the point where I was right to the point where I didn't know how to identify these feelings. And I hadn't felt feelings in so long that even if I was off meds, I don't know if I could identify them in the first place. So, but what I knew is that, and I, and so I checked in with myself, like if I'm really going to get the most time out, if I'm really going to get the most out of my time here. I need to be able to feel, I need to be able to connect. And I couldn't do that when I was so numbed out. And so for me, my first step was having to fight with 
right? Go against the grain. Like, even though they said no, I had to keep fighting for my yes. What did I need to say yes to? What did I need to say no to? I had, I identified the fact that I need to feel. And so they told me no multiple times because they said I was a risk to myself and others. And that it was a stipulation of my parole that I'd be on these meds. And so finally, the last time I went and they denied me, I went home to home to the rehab. I went back to the rehab that afternoon. And that night was uh, the night nurse. My favorite nice night nurse was on. And because I was on so many meds, I was the zombie during the day and then couldn't sleep at night. And so she and I were really close. I went up and I made her a cup of coffee and I came down and I sat with her in our little room in the, in the, in the med room and stuff and where we would sit and always talk. And I, she says, I mean, where, how did it go? How did it go at the, at your appointment? And I said, you know what? It went so good. This is what we're going to do. And I laid out the whole med, uh, the script, the, the regimen. And thank God I knew a little bit about what I was doing because that could have been very dangerous. And I do, I never re- recommend to go against medical advice, but I always recommend to do what you have to do to save your own life, yeah. no matter what that looks like. Yep. And so that's what I did. And so the next few week, the next week or so, I was coming out of my skin. I was not okay. I was having a hard time, but I had to grit, grin and bear through it. Mm-hmm. And And one day, a few days in, I mean, I'm sweating profusely. My head's pounding. I'm shaking. My nervous system is shot because at the time they still prescribed benzodiazepines. And so I was weaning off of benzodiazepines. And it was after programming one day and uh, we went to the rec room and the rec room was this place where all the women came and hung out after the end of their work day or their school day or their programming day. And they were talking on the phone and watching movies and reading books and writing letters and playing card games. And I look over and there's this old treadmill in the corner of the rec room and there was some stuff hanging off of it. And I asked a couple of people about it. They didn't know anything about it. So I went over and I started it and it worked. And so I got on it. And this old treadmill was something to be reckoned with because it was loud. It smelled. And if you've ever heard the screech of a belt, an old belt on something, especially an old treadmill, it sounds like you're murdering a cat. Super loud. The girls on the phone were yelling at me, get off that thing, get off. And I almost got into physical altercations multiple times because I was not getting off that treadmill. I didn't know what called me to it. Yeah, I didn't know what it was that I, I just knew I needed to move my body and I couldn't go outside and do it. Yeah, right. I was either going to run for the hills and run and go get loaded or I was getting on that treadmill. And that day I made the choice to get on the treadmill and it saved my life because I got on that treadmill every single day for the rest of my stay there. And when I started being able to go home, I would run at home. And so I, by the time I got out, I had started developing this mo- movement pattern, yes. right? This purposeful movement habit, this non-negotiable of every single day, I got to move. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how it happens. I got to move. And, you know, that's shifted over the years. But in the beginning, I noticed that while everybody else was falling apart around me that I had gone to this program with, I was still doing it. I was still living a healthy life. I was Mm -hmm. choosing health. I was choosing life. I was choosing wellness. I was choosing happiness. I was choosing exercise. I was choosing healthier foods. And I started to teach myself what that was doing. And little did I know back then that I was practicing functional nutrition and I was practicing functional medicine. And, you know, I found that I had had to step away a little bit from those normalized and accepted ways of getting sober, because for me, those ways were not helping me. 
it didn't help me to go at 7.30 at night and drink a pot of coffee and smoke a pack of cigarettes and eat a half a sheet, a half a sheet cake. It didn't benefit me to be around a bunch of people who continued to tell themselves that they were powerless. It didn't benefit me to continue to hear war stories and, and foxhole stories and about how big the bag was and how hard the, the, the charges, how big the charges were. It, it, you know, and, and while I know that there are meetings and programs out there that absolutely have amazing recovery and I have met some amazing people in 12 step recovery, I needed whole health recovery. And that's not something I was experiencing through the 12 steps. And so that's what lifestyle recovery really is, is whole health recovery, mind, body, and spirit, body included. That means that if I'm in recovery, that means I'm not numbing out with food. That means I'm not numbing out with your friend's husband. That means I'm not, you know, spreading rumors and drama and talking about everybody and comparing myself and having the scarcity mindset, which is what I was legitimately finding most of in these, in these circles. And so I knew I had to create a new circle and they say, you know, if there's a book out there that you can't find that you need to read and it's not there, you got to write it. And so I did. And so I've now written the book. And so now the book is coming out, uh, you know, we're hoping end of April, anything at the late, yeah. So pre-launch, no matter what is happening, April. Um, but hopefully the hard launch will also be in April as well. So the book's coming out uh, called A Different Kind of Strong and it's yes. Mastering the Art of Lifestyle Recovery. And so it's going to break down the six steps that I've learned. You know, the first piece being connection, the final piece being accountability, right? Who am I being in this moment, right? If I ha- What am I experiencing in this current moment? And do I like it? If so, awesome. If not, what am I going to do to shift it? right? Am I in alignment with where I want to go? Am I in alignment? Am I surrounding myself with the people? Am I looking at my schedule? Is, is my schedule aligning? Are my actions aligning with where I want to go? My balance, my balance in my schedule during the day, my energy throughout the day. Am I focusing enough energy on the areas of my life that keep me well and whole? Yes. Am I seeing, am I on, am I honoring my yeses and nos? Am I saying yes to the things that serve me and no to the things that no longer serve me? Mm. And am I being honest with myself? Am I being authentic? Am I holding myself accountable to being my most authentic self? Am I being honest with myself so that I can be honest with other people about what I really need and want in my life? Because if not, guess what? I'm not going to be in alignment. I'm not going to be able to stay connected to my current experience because it's going to be so uncomfortable when we're off track. It feels like it right? When we're off track and we're not making decisions that serve us, we can feel it. And sometimes it's so painful that we think that if we take a step in the right direction, that it might, you know, might hurt. That might hurt too. It's gonna, it's gonna choose your hard, choose your hard. You're either going to be unhappy and miserable, living a life of inauthenticity and people pleasing and perfectionism, trying to make everybody else happy, or you're going to choose what actually is meant for you. Yeah. Right. And yeah, that's going to upset a couple people and that's okay. Cause one of my favorite sayings is it's old, it's old, but those who mind don't matter. And those who matter don't mind. Right. Right. <laughs> I love that. Those who matter don't mind is a word because that's something that I've had to experience is because when you're operating in that space of lack in that space of people pleasing, it's all about the transaction. Like it has to matter for it to be meaningful. And when you're able to meet that first friend or that first mentor or that first coach that actually cares about you, regardless of who you are, or no matter how much you fuck up or anything like that, then it really, it really shifts how you engage with the world. But first, like you said, that shifts, that shift happens within. 
Like first you had to give yourself that grace. And then now you meet someone else that extends that grace to you. And then you're like, why would I ever settle for the bullshit if I'm able to have the real shit, you know? And so I think that that, that's a word. So thank you so much for saying that because I know someone, a lot of people out there need to hear that, especially going through trials and tribulations such as you. And I want to lift up especially how you say that recovery, whether it's from addiction to drugs, sex, you know, um, working, working too much, whatever the addiction is, um, it takes a holistic approach. You know, a lot of people, you know, go, you know, the intellectual route, which was my path. Like I got four degrees, two of them from Harvard. Like, you know, like everyone in the world needed to know how fucking smart I am. Okay. Like that's how it was for me. (laughs) But like at the end of the day, like you also need that you have the mind, you have your body and you have your soul. So in many ways I compromise in what people may call sell, sell. I didn't quite sell my soul, but like you're losing part of your soul when you really over index for these other aspects of your, your being. So let's talk a little bit more about how that balance came about for you, that mind, that body, and that soul, because you talk about kind of like your workout and, you know, the recovery, but let's talk, bring in a little bit more of that soulful spiritual aspect into how you, how you operate. Absolutely. And so, you know, the six steps I kind of talked about, I touched on them a little bit just now. It really is like an order of operation for me because it's something that, yes, I can take anywhere from an hour to teach it, or I can take anywhere from six months to teach it. It depends on the depth that we do. Right. But really what it comes down to is I can do it in a few minutes in my head, just like, you know, you check and make sure that you have, you know, when you're walking out the door, did I grab my keys? Did I grab my phone? Did I grab my purse? Did I grab my lunch for today? Uh, you know, did I schedule that call? It's kind of the same thing with the steps for me because, and that's why I developed them. Um, what am I, what's going well right now? What's not going well. And in my head, what's not going well will immediately always pop up. And then, so, okay, what do I want to be experiencing instead? That's the alignment piece. What do I want to be experiencing instead? And so for example, this count came up with my career path multiple times throughout the last 10 years. I thought for sure that my path to saving lives was being a personal trainer. I thought that if I could get you confident in your skin, if I could get you strong and feeling good in your body, that that would solve all your problems, right? Because I knew the other answers. I knew that it helped with mental health. I knew that it helped with depression. I knew that it helped with all the different things, but that's not why people necessarily come to you. They come to you to look better, right? And so you knowing business, you sell people what they want and actually give them what they need. And so that's what I did for the first seven years. I really loved being in the gym, encouraging people. I had a boot camp that I ran uh, six days a week. I ran seven sessions, six, eight sessions, six days a week. And I really enjoyed cheering on my clients and getting in their head and, and saying things like, that's all right. These are your results. I get mine. Yeah. You do, you do what you want. These are your results. I get my results. Yeah. So, you, you know, and I would be in their heads and I, I didn't realize that that's really where the magic was happening. But at the time I just realized it was because I was helping them become physically strong. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was also competing. And so mm-hmm. when I'd be walking through, I started working out, right. And I just got out of rehab. I had been in prison. I'd lost about 20 pounds and I was really feeling good. And I'd be walking through the grocery store and mind you, I was still doing hair and someone would stop. I remember someone stopped me. Oh my God, what do you do? And I was like, Oh, I do hair. And they're like, mm, no, I mean like, what do you do for these? And I was like, <laughs> you mean 
bicep curls. I do bicep curls. And they're like, oh yeah. So you're, are you a trainer? And I was like, no, they're like, oh, do you compete? I didn't even know what they were talking about. I didn't know anything about fitness competitions or anything. So of course I started going and looking it up and asking questions. And I was like, oh, I could do that. And so I looked up a diet online and I hit up a friend of mine who had a supplement shop and we tweaked the diet for me. And next thing you know, I'm eight weeks out from a show and I put myself on stage all by myself multiple times before I ended up getting a coach. And I got addicted to it a hundred percent. I fell in love with the idea of changing my body based off of the food I ate. And everybody wanted to know, Hey, Jen, what can I do to get those abs? I want your abs. What can I do without having to change my food? And I'm like, I don't know, but if you figure it out, let me know. Cause we'll be billionaires because nobody <laughs> knows unless you go in, right. You can't buy yourself a healthy body. Yeah. You just can't, you can right. buy yourself a fit looking body, but you can't buy fitness. You can't buy health. And that was something that, you know, I really, really realized was I was missing the mark. People would come up to me and they'd say, Oh my God, I want to look like you. I want to be healthy. And I'd have to tell them, well, you're going to have to pick one because you can't have both. And what I realized was that the abs are great, but when they're sitting on a body of seven or 8% body fat and you're a female and you've been that lean for years upon years, I was, I'd say 8%, seven, 8% body fat for three or four years. I didn't have a menstrual cycle. Uh, my kidneys were shutting down mm. from uh, too much protein. I was having urinary tract infections left and right. I was getting migraines all the time. I was weak. It was, I was depleting my body completely Ooh. because of the way I wouldn't go out with my friends. I didn't drink ever and not be, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I consider myself in recovery. I consider myself in lifestyle recovery. And so I absolutely have drinks here and there with my friends and I absolutely enjoy a social cocktail here and there, but I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't have a French fry. I weighed all of my food. I would find myself pinching my skin. Mm. And mind you, remember, I didn't get into fitness to look any kind of way. It was to save my life. Mm. It was to be mentally well. And now all of a sudden I have orthorexia, which is right when I'm so obsessed with counting my calories and weighing my food and what I look like in the mirror that it was like I had to eat the perfect amount of food and just enough calories and nothing more, nothing left. And it became a pr another prison. Mm. And, and so I found myself standing on stage competing for first place. We were battling it out, me and this woman for first place. And I'm staring at this woman and she's probably 15 years older than me. And her skin is slack and loose from years of dieting down and mm. bulking up and dieting down. Mm. And I could see the knots from the injections on her hips. Mm. And that I knew, I knew that in order to keep going to the level that I wanted to go, if I wanted to go pro, I knew I was going to have to start doing injectables. And for me, that was just a deal breaker. It was something that crossed my mind because of course it crosses my mind. I want to win. But if that's what I got to do to win, if that's what I'm going to look like, what am I doing? Right. I don't want to look like that <laughs> for what, for a plastic trophy from a bunch of judges that don't look like that either. <laughs> right. And so I was like, you know what, F this, this isn't it. And I stopped. And I, but of course I threw the baby out with the bathwater. I stopped working out. I stopped eating clean. I stopped training clients slowly, but surely right. I just kind of weaned them off. Yeah. And the next thing you knew, I was in a full blown depression, 20, 30 pounds heavier, mm -hmm. completely stuck on the couch, canceling even my hair clients because I was just in such a bad place. Yeah. And so when I was scrolling through, I just realized it, this is really before I started this coaching, the coaching that I do now, because this is what cat, cat, this was the catalyst, I should say. I was going to say catapulted, but this was the catalyst that lit the fire for lifestyle recovery because it isn't just about being fit. 
It's not just about eating clean. It's not just about prayer and meditation. It's not just about going to meetings and having a community that supports you and loves you. It's about all of it. It's about who you're being when you look in the mirror. And so I had to start recognizing when I looked in that mirror, do I love the woman that I'm staring back, that's staring back at me? Mm-hmm. What does she need to know? Mm-hmm. And I started connecting to her. And that, and I went back and I started looking at what were all the pieces. And it was every time I really needed to make a shift, I had to get connected first. And so that's what, that's how that came out as the first step. And so for me, it really is, it shows up in all the different areas of my life when I'm not eating enough or when I'm not moving my body enough, I can feel that. And because I've built the relationship I have with myself today, like I can recognize what I'm missing and what I need to shift with my non-negotiables. And so I would, you know, it, maybe it doesn't sound spiritual, but for me, one of my biggest spiritual pieces are my non-negotiables. Yes. Through my four to five meals a day of healthy, nutritious meals, right? And now I can have other stuff too, but I don't need as much other stuff because I'm not feeding for as much other stuff because I've filled my body with what it needed. Mm-hmm. Um, enough sleep, minimum seven hours. Like I'll push it to 6.5, but I, it, generally I'd rather just be late to whatever I was supposed to be at in the morning because I want that sleep. It's, yeah. it's non-negotiable for me Yeah, um, because of my mental health, right? Mental health. It's so important. Um, water. I drink three of these a day. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it's two, but even two is 66 ounces, 67 mm-hmm. ounces, mm-hmm. but I drink about a hundred ounces of water a day. That's a pretty much a non-negotiable because if not, I get headaches, I get tired, I get brain fog. Um, and then what's another one? And purposeful movement. Yeah. Ha- even if it's just going for a walk around my block, like I have to get out and get fresh air and get movement. And e- so, you know, if I, I spend a lot of time on my computer doing work and stuff, and mm-hmm. there's times when I'll notice that I haven't been outside yet that day, maybe my husband took the dogs for the walk that morning because I was on a call or something. And so I will purposefully close everything down go and just go for a walk around my block just to get air in my lungs, just to feel good. And I know some people have the walking desks just to get them moving their body. And I feel like that's one of the biggest pieces. And, you know, my meditation is generally when I'm moving, it's either when I'm stretching or doing some kind of a body weight movement or when I'm exercising because my, my med, it's very difficult for my brain to be still and quiet when I'm not moving my body. Mm-hmm. And something interesting that I heard about yoga was that yes, yoga is absolutely, you know, contributes to strengthening your body and, you know, and, and peacefulness, but really it was created to keep the mind and body busy so that the spirit could be present. Yes, period. And I love that you you share your tips that people wouldn't normally attribute to spirituality because everything that you've listed is exactly what you do to connect back to your soul. Because at the end of the day, it's all about just connecting to you. Like for those that, you know, believe in God, believe in Allah, source, you know, that connection is within us too, as within and so without. And when we're going for a walk outside, like getting outside in the sun, I mean, the sun gives us life. Come on now, if we aren't getting into the sun, how can we have our life? And and there's so many things that you listed, your sleep, your boundaries, all these things are exactly what the spiritual community, the metaphysical community start with. Like these are baseline things that you have to do before you can even try to reach any kind of enlightenment. If you don't set hard and fast boundaries for yourself and then for for others, then how is that honoring yourself and how is that honoring God, the temple that created, you know, that that he she created? 
for you. So I love that you talk about that. And mindful movement especially is something that I've come into an understanding of in the past couple of years for me. Like I've gotten my yoga teacher certification. I've gotten my Tai Chi master certification. I, you know, obviously like I like the, cert- the academia stuff. So <laughs> I'm going to do all that shit. But, but it wasn't until I got into that that I understood the, the importance of the embodiment of all the things that we learn. For example, like you can teach someone all the spiritual things. You can teach someone all the the health diet things, but if you aren't embodying it, if you aren't practicing it, then it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all. And I would love to learn, you know, obviously, but you have something to share on that. And then also how you work with your clients on the embodiment of some of these recovery tools, because that to me is, is the hardest part. That's the work. Absolutely. So one of the things I love to do with my clients, and sometimes they're comfortable with this in the beginning, and sometimes they're not, and it takes some time to work up to it. But Mm -hmm. I find that when I'm able to get them to close their eyes, and one practice I love to do with them is to get them to close their eyes and actually lay down, I make them get their phone, so I can't see them, they're just laying down. And I get to talk them through certain types of movement. Sometimes they're laying down, sometimes we're doing things with our arms, it just depends on the situation, but generally laying down. And or doing stretching. Like I, that's actually one of the more common ones is I'll have them have their eyes closed, but listen and just listen to my voice as we're doing stretching. And so whatever movement comes to mind when they're doing this is what they should be doing. I have them shut their eyes because sometimes they'll get into compare and despair, especially with yoga moves or any kind of stretching because I'm very flexible. And so I find that I try to remove any kind of judgment from them. Um, And when I'm speaking to them, they always notice where tightness is coming up in their body. And so I, I, I try to get them to, my goal is to get them to learn how to move their body in a way and stretch their body in a way that without judgment, just by breathing in curiosity and breathing space into the pains that are giving them tightness and thanking them for the awareness that they are giving us of, of areas where we get to stretch a little bit more or areas where we might be holding on to something and we mm-hmm. get to breathe space into those areas and allow whatever's coming up to come up. And I notice that a lot of times whenever we start to breathe space into areas that are tight in our body, our body starts to tell us things about areas in our life that we're stuck and things that are still that we're holding on to maybe that we haven't let go of, even with the therapist or with the trauma coach or with somebody else, because they're not necessarily working with the body to listen to it. And, you know, people say that we're led by our thoughts, but our thoughts are often triggered by feelings in our body. And when, and and vice versa, right. It's almost this play this catch 22 play against each other. And sometimes there are, there is trauma that's trapped. And so when we're tight, you know, it's that trauma that's Mm not wanting us to open up and be free and be relaxed and be at peace. And so it's because it's not safe and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just trying to keep us safe. And so that's when we'll start digging into parts work. And we'll start identifying like which parts are super uncomfortable right now, which parts feel super vulnerable right now. Is there anything any of our parts need to tell us is the seven-year-old part, the nine-year-old part, the 19-year-old part of us, right? What are they needing us to know right now in this moment? And so really allowing us to connect to um, those those hidden nooks, those hidden, those hidden pieces. It's very helpful. And, I, and this to me is like gold, this idea of, you know, our, our body speaking to us through the pain, through, through the, through the emotions, through the tightness or whatever, through the sickness, through the dis-ease. And this is something too, that I believe doesn't get talked about enough, especially in medical communities. And 
there is this over-reliance, and you mentioned it before, on, on prescription drugs to solve all problems. I mean, you yourself said it. You were on seven different medications for illness that really needed to be treated emotionally. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Emotionally. And, you know, how do you speak to this idea of, um, of working through healing, if you will, of the body and kind of this marrying of that with the, with the Western kind of medical culture? I don't know if this is too controversial, but, um, no, yeah, but, no, I'm open to it. Girl. Okay. But I would love to kind of talk with you, especially given your personal experience. And I know you also dealt with challenges with your own mother and your, in, in this way and your own family history and how this relates to how you move forward in your own life and with your clients as well. Oh, this is a good one. It is juicy. It is a sensitive subject for some, but I have absolutely no problem sharing my experience. As okay. long as what's understood on a conscious level is that my experience can't be taken and duplicated, that everybody has their own experience. Period. Everybody has to follow what's true for them. And yes. so I would never, ever recommend to go against medical advice. However, I do recommend to find a true functional medicine doctor who has actually gone back to school and been become licensed as a functional medicine doctor. I feel like that's the, the gap. I feel like they, they bridge the gap more than any other type of general, uh, you know, your, your, your general, uh, what do you call it? Your uh, regular medical doctor, your red general MD. Unfortunately, doctors, and I learned this while my mom was in the neuro ICU in Loma Linda in Southern California. She was in the ICU for six weeks because she had fallen out. Uh, she had relapsed on alcohol and we didn't know. And she was detoxing and fell out and had a seizure as a result of her alcohol detox. And she aspirated, meaning during a seizure, she vomited and inhaled it. Mm -hmm. And so they had to immediately intubate her and knock her out. And so over the course of those few weeks, I was in the, I was there standing over bed 13 hours a day. And so I had, I was so blessed to be able to meet the doctor and that she had the doctor that she had because he took a liking to me and he would wait there for me until I got there in the morning so that we could talk about my mom's case. And so he and I got pretty close. And what was interesting to me is he said, they don't even get a semester of nutrition, mm. not even a semester of nutrition. It's like four weeks or something ridiculous mm. of nutrition. And so he was actually asking me advice. Erin, I don't even have a high school diploma. <laughs> and this ICU doctor, this, neurolo this neurology department ICU doctor is asking me if he should do keto or not. Keto or low carb. And I'm thinking, and then the plates of food started coming in. Once she started healing up and she could start eating and we would start practicing food. It was not food. It was not food. It was this processed, I could smell the sodium, the like packaged, like powdered food, like the powdered potatoes and like, girl, I can't, it, it just, I get so upset on every level when I think about how disgusting our, our medical system is right now. And we do not have a medical care system. We have what's called in America, a medical management system, meaning that they are there to manage our symptoms. They are there to put a bandaid on a, on it. Like that's what they're there for. And that means that all of the type two diabetes that is totally preventable, 
It's totally preventable, but no one's out there fighting that fight. During COVID, no one was out there saying, hey, shut down McDonald's. Right. It's like, where were the people who were fighting for common sense? Where were the people? Well, we were out there. I promise we were out there. Yeah, we were, we were out there, but they don't cheese. listen. <laughs> we were out there. They don't listen. We were, we were the woo. We were too woo woo. We, yeah. we were, we didn't know what we were talking about. And it's like, yeah, but we're not the ones dropping dead from heart attacks right now. Right. right? And so there, you know, what, what, what COVID took was chronic inflamed patients. Yes. Chronically inflamed people. Yes. If you are chronically inflamed, right? If you have a chronic inflammation type di- di- disease, you are absolutely subjected to, or you are absolutely critically uh, at risk mm-hmm. for dying of COVID. Why? Because it was an inflammatory virus. And so did they tell anyone, hey, stop eating inflammatory foods and it'll help you. Hey, you know, start moving your body, get outside, get fresh air, get sun, get vitamin D. No, they locked us in our houses and told us be scared. And so not only were our nervous system shot, which totally depleted our immune system, right? It scared the shit out of everybody. Now everybody's even more disconnected than they were before. And now no one knows what to do. And I do feel like there were a lot of people that started to take their own health in their own hands. I just feel like, you know, our so-called government, our so-called powers that be really missed the mark on this one. And it's devastating, but there are, what's beautiful is that there is social media now and there is the internet now. And for those of us that do want to save our own lives, like we, and that do need help, there, there are resources out there for us. And you guys, when it comes down to it, it's really simple. Eat whole clean foods, chew your food really well, drink lots of water, real good water, like know where your stuff's sourced from, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we like we talk about like the train derailment that just happened, right? That should be like literally breaking news on every single news station that there was a contamination in our water and our air and it's being so hushed up. And unfortunately, those are the systems that are in place right now. And so it's our responsibility to, I don't want to say necessarily fight. Like I'm not, I'm not out here trying to, I'm definitely not someone who's out there out complaining all the time about what's not being done because I don't really give a shit about the problems. I care about the solutions. And so what are we doing to actually make a difference? And so your specific question was, how do we, how do we talk to these doctors? Right. And like, really what I would say is, or individuals God, or people in general, how do we help bridge this gap between the what we're, the it's East hard. and the West? It, it's 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 hard, but we can do hard things. And I think that really, like people need to start asking themselves. Like people know. I think instinctively people know, and yes. we're just like, and, and that's and that's the hardest part is that find a way to start asking yourself and trusting yes. yourself. And if yes. you don't know how to do that, get a coach, get a mentor, get someone who knows, like find someone who knows, you know, what Aaron and I are talking about here. Reach out to Aaron, reach out to me, reach out <laughs> to someone that you know, that you know knows, right? If you're, you listen to the people and the way they talk, like there are so many people on, God, Dr. Will Cole is one. The holistic psychologist is one. Um, I'm trying to think of just randoms that are on social media, but it's really start, start to fill your space with more knowledge. Yes. Yes. It's the, it's the ignorance that is killing us. It's the disconnection that yes. is killing us. And so Period. I think bridging the gap really is about filling yourself with more knowledge. And I don't mean just WebMD. I'm talking about like what foods are anti-inflammatory, Google that Mm -hmm. and start eating those. Mm -hmm. And then how much protein should I be eating a day? Google it. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a bunch of different answers. Add them all up and divide it and get your average, right? Like, (laughs) I mean, really, like I figured all this stuff out on my own, right? right? And over the last 10 years, the way I did it was by asking myself what I needed. If I would have just listened to the doctors and blindfolded and just said, Hey, whatever you think, I'd absolutely still be numbed out right now by those meds. 
right? They thought they knew what was best for me. You have to identify. Now, if you're going in and you got some real serious issues, we need the doctors for that. There is absolutely a place for Western medicine. They save lives every day. Period. But their job is to actually like, you know, you know, if you're, you've got pancreatitis, you got to go deal with that. If you have a brain aneurysm, you got to deal with that. If you have a heart issue, you got to deal with that. But what are the things you can do to eat healthier? So you have a healthier heart, Yeah. right? Can you be moving your body a little bit every day? So really it's like, I think having your conversation with your doctor about, I'm sorry, they don't know anything about nutrition. I was going to say about, you know, what to eat, but they don't know. That's my whole point is they don't know. And so if you have the ability to go to a functional medicine doctor, right? If that's something that's in your plan, try to choose that. If that's Mm -hmm. not something that's an option for you, really it's about starting just to eat foods that are grown from the ground, right? Start eating foods that are grown from the ground, not in a box or bag. Start moving your body, not just from the couch to the kitchen or to the car, to the grocery store. I'm talking like get out and actually move on purpose and break a sweat. Get better rest in the evening times. If you're playing on your phone until midnight, like why don't you shut the phone down at 930 and read or draw or write for the next half hour, hour, and actually let yourself decompress. Um, There's just a lot that you can do to really start to take your own health and wellness into your own hands, because I'm going to tell you right now, most doctors are going to give you a pill for that. Yes. And I, I want to highlight a couple of things that you said, because I feel like in addition to reaching out to those experts, is the taking the ownership into your number six point yep. in your book, accountability. Okay. Like, I really love that you highlighted that because that's something that I feel like we've lost a lot of in this world today and society today is, is accountability because we really have lost our agency to think for ourselves. And this is the age of knowing we're in the Aquarian age. We're in it's a completely different, you know, existence of where we're not following leaders anymore. We're not following the priests and the pastors and the presidents and the governors and the kings and the queens. We live and represent ourselves as sovereign beings. And I've talked about this before on my podcast is sovereignty. And in that sovereignty, it requires accountability. It requires ownership. And in that owning of ourselves, we also have to take care of ourselves. And you you brought that up too, is it in taking care of ourselves is what do I know? Like, if I only know what the medical doctors have told me, what can I learn over here? Like, who else can I follow? How can I expand my knowledge, my skill set? And that's so critical in just lifting your consciousness, period, is in knowing more, knowing more to how to integrate into my body. And so I really, really love that you shared and lifted up all those things because that is how we come up as humans in in our consciousness, in our beings, in our love for self and in our love for others. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we're coming up on our on our hour here. So I just want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about your your book. Um, how can we get it? Also, how can we get have coaching classes with you or join one of your webinars or whatever you're offering? Just please share with listeners and viewers. How can we stay in touch with with your services and who you are? Absolutely. So uh, there will be a website coming soon with the book. It'll also be uploaded onto my website as soon as all the information is available for it. My website is Lifestyle Recovery Solutions.com that I'm sure will be up in the description if she can share that with you guys. And I will be having upcoming masterclasses. I believe the next one is March 9th. So the day after Women's Day and it's the art of connection. And then very uh, the next actual 
thing I'm running after that is I'm going to be doing a lifestyle cleanse. So I have a 10 day lifestyle cleanse and it's really an opportunity mm-hmm. to declutter the different areas of your life so that you can better connect to what you're experiencing and better enjoy your experience when you connect, because I know it's very difficult to move forward when there's a bunch of stuff in our way. And so those are the two things that I have coming up. So you can find all the information for those on my website in the next, uh, by the time this is aired, I'm sure you'll be able to find all of that on the website. So um, if, if this airs past that, there will be from here over the next six months, all the way up until I have them all the way booked until September. So the second Thursday of the month, I will be having my art of uh connection class. It'll be art of connection, art of alignment, the art of balance, the art of boundaries, the art of authenticity, and the art of accountability are the six classes I'll be running every month until September. That's so perfect. I love it. I love it. I love it. And um, for those that are just um, meeting Jen or wanting to connect with Jen, definitely reach out to her. The book sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to pre-order it. So be sure we're going to put that link in the show notes. So definitely look out for that. And I just want to thank you again for your vulnerability, for your courageousness, for everything that you are and bringing to this world, because we need more people like you. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for bringing us all together, Erin. I appreciate it. Yes. And all of you who are watching and listening, this was the MetaBusiness Millennial Podcast. We thank you so much for watching, for listening, and just for following us. And stay tuned for more episodes on my website, themetabusiness.world, also on my YouTube channel at I am Aaron Patton. And of course, you can find me on Instagram and all the other social media platforms at I am Aaron Patton. I love you all so much. Peace. Did you really love this episode of the MetaBusiness Millennial Podcast? Well, I am honored. And I appreciate you subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with your friends. Because your feedback allows us to co-create more enlightened conversations. And if you're interested in growing your soul now, head over to my website, AaronPatton.com, to find all the show notes, links, and free resources to get your energy activated today. In the meantime, stay bright, my friends. Much love and light. Peace.